0: The shoulder on the trail broke under the weight of the armored car, and the armored car rolled down about a quarter of a mile down a very steep uh, hill and um, killed uh, three members of our delegation. Uh, It got to the bottom. It burned. It had ammunition. The ammunition cooked off, and uh, it was a real tragedy. So we lost uh, three uh, good friends of mine in that delegation. We came home, and uh, we had— a funeral ceremony and President Clinton charges to go back again and um, back we went.
1: Welcome to this final episode of the season 2017 of Global, IRISE monthly podcast where we take one country per episode, break it down for you as simple as we can, but certainly go in depth with some great guests. My name is John Tomaszewski.
2: My name is Sinclair Stafford.
1: And let's get this started. Sinclair, it's good to be back with you. I'm really glad that we're sort of ending the season off together. It's how yeah. we began yeah, in Colombia. Yeah. And now we're working in Bosnia and Herzegovina. So it, it is really a confusing country, Sinclair, not because of its people or its culture, but certainly just its name yeah. and, and geographic sort of what belongs where.
2: It's a lot to wrap your head around sometimes.
1: Yeah. So Bosnia Herzegovina is a federation of two entities.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so you'd think that the federation of Bosnia Herzegovina is the federation, right? Yeah. Well, it's not. It's a federation of Bosnia Herzegovina and the Republic of Srpska. Uh, Bosnia is the northern sort of central part of the country and Herzegovina uh, south and southwest. And today we're talking about the federation of the two entities. Again, Bosnia Herzegovina and the Republic of Srpska in Bosnia and Herzegovina. Do you get that? You following?
2: I think you lost Uh, me, but let's just keep going.
1: (laughs) Great discussion for uh, your Christmas holidays when you're sitting around the table drinking plum brandy, probably from Bosnia. Yeah.
2: You can show off a little bit. Yes. You you know something.
1: What about this Republic of Srpska? Do you know these people?
2: Yeah. And JT, you would know because actually you studied European politics. So even though we know you as the Africa guy here at IRI, um, you are also a European expert. So why don't you... I'm an
1: accidental Africanist. who studied Central and East European politics.
2: Um, So why don't you give us the fast facts? What do we need to know about Bosnia and Herzegovina?
1: So Sinclair, it's a small population. It's about 3.8 million, um, the size of Oklahoma. Wow, that's so small. It is small. It's estimated that Bosniaks constitute about two-fifths, Serbs, like one-third, and then Croats, less than one-fifth of the population. It's located in southeastern Europe. It borders the Adriatic Sea, Croatia, Serbia, and Montenegro. And then it it is sort of situated, if you look on a map, in the Western Balkan Peninsula. Um, But it does have one of the smallest coastlines in Europe. And Croatia sort of takes up the majority of the coast there. The ethnicity and religion, um, Bosniaks, generally Muslims, Serbs, generally Orthodox Christians. And then Croats are generally Roman Catholics. So we've got ethnic diversity. We've got geographic diversity. We've got religious diversity. Um, So the mother tongue of the country, Sinclair, is majority Serbo-Croatian, term used to describe collectively this sort of set of languages known as Serbian, Croatian, Bosnian, kind of depends on the speaker's ethnic and political affiliation. But as we'll hear, they all understand each other, um, despite the fact that they speak sort of distinct dialects. Um, Latin and Cyrillic uh, alphabet exist, and both have been taught in schools and used in the press. But the rise of nationalism in the 1990s prompted the Serbian alignment with Cyrillic and a Croat and Bosniak alignment with the Latin alphabet. So we even have a fight over letters.
2: Yeah, that's what I think is so fascinating about this region is that the sectarianism and the the differences between the different groups go into so go far, go really far. <laughs> I yeah. Say like, go all the way down into the, the letters. Wide they and use. deep.
1: Yeah. Wide and deep. Yeah. But yeah, yes. they all
2: speak to the sit. They all understand that. Yeah. The same language.
1: As much as it is something that holds them together, it's certainly, um, you can see how it can be used for right. political purposes and otherwise. And, and in case, and in fact is the case here. Well, Sinclair for some lighter content. Yeah. Uh, well, not really light because we're going to talk about an assassination, but, <laughs> uh, there's Sarajevo, which is a well-known city, uh, beautiful city, uh, Archduke Franz Ferdinand was assassinated there, which sort of created uh, the conditions or led to the outbreak of World War one
2: The Great War.
1: The Great War. Speaking of Sarajevo, it is also the site of the longest siege of a city in modern military history. So it's about 1,425 days, longer than Leningrad. And when we think about sieges, we think about what's going on in places like Mosul today, mm-hmm. where uh, you're trying to take yeah. back the city or capture right. the city. So it's, 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 it's about three, it's almost like three years, more than three Holy years. Crap. Yeah. Despite that it remains a beautiful place. Bosnia and Herzegovina has one of the last remaining jungles in Europe.
2: Trivia quiz answer. <laughs> <laughs>
3: um,
1: at Peruchica, it has trees that are almost 300 years old and the vintage of the farthest. So how long it's been there has been over 20,000 years. What? Hey, Sinclair, have you ever heard of a bam? No. That's the money. The Bosnian convertible mark uh, can't be bought outside the country, so you can't get it at your bank. But when you arrive in the country, you got to give all your money and get some BAMS. And when you leave, you give your BAMS back, and they'll take <laughs> them back. Otherwise, you take them home as a, as an expensive souvenir. And I'm sure you, in your travels around the world, you have lots of foreign currency. So
2: I do right now, actually.
1: Yeah, I well, have some
2: Jordanian diners and Peruvian soles right yeah, but now. But at least
1: those you can exchange somewhere. Yeah, the BAMS you can't. So, Sinclair, we've got a great lineup today. So,
2: for our first guest, I'm going to steal a line here from the West Wing. Uh, as President Bartlett would say, he has a better title than President of the United States. On today's episode, we have the former Supreme Allied Commander of NATO forces in Europe, General Wesley Clark is going to be one of our guests. He's a retired four-star general of the U.S. Army, West Point Valedictorian, Rhodes Scholar, University of Oxford graduate, Presidential Medal of Freedom recipient, And Democratic Party presidential nomination candidate. Oh, he's also got a few knighthoods, you know, no big deal. Wow.
0: (laughs) Thank you. Thanks very much for inviting me to be on.
1: Who's our second guest, JT? Yeah, so we have Zana Marjanovic. Zana is a Bosnian actress, first-term member of parliament, documentary filmmaker. She starred in The Land of Milk and Honey, which was Angelina Jolie's directorial debut about the Bosnian Civil War. When she's not hanging out with Angelina Jolie Sinclair, though, she's busy as an MP in Bosnia-Herzegovina's upper house of parliament of the Federation of Bosnia-Herzegovina.
2: Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. To round things out, we've got our IRI expert, Borco. Borco. Borislav Spasoljevic. He's IRI's resident program director in Sarajevo. He studied international relations and public relations at the University of Belgrade. And he's been with the Institute for the past 12 years.
1: And while he's an expert on the Balkans, he's worked all over the world for IRI, including... In Nepal, where he served as one of IRI's representatives on a team of 52 election observers uh, led by Jimmy Carter in the 2013 elections there.
4: Thanks, guys. Thanks for inviting me. It's always a pleasure for me to talk about Bosnia Herzegovina.
2: Sounds great. Let's get started. So, Borko. I think the modern history of Bosnia and Herzegovina really begins with the history of the former Yugoslavia, right? So, how did Yugoslavia emerge from the Second World War? Yeah,
4: well, I mean, uh, yeah, we can say that modern history of Bosnia starts after the, the World War II, but actually, Bosnia had its medieval state uh, in the 14th century. We should mention that. you know, Some yeah, people yeah. would get offended if we do not, So, uh, and it was basically <laughs> an independent entity until the Ottoman invasions in, in the 15th century. But after that, it was basically the part of larger empires, first the Ottoman Empire, then uh, by the end of the 19th century, the part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. and we just need to to remember that World War One basically started in Sarajevo, uh, and with the event uh, where Gavrilo Princip uh, killed the heir to the Austrian-Hungarian throne, uh, Franz Ferdinand, that event actually shaped the history of the modern world. Without that event, maybe we, we wouldn't have a World War One, and without without World War One, we wouldn't have. World War Two, so you can imagine how little yes. event at that time yes. in uh, 1914 actually shaped the history of the world. So. It also
1: reminds us how important it is to keep an eye on things today. Absolutely. Um, so that brings us to World War One. What's next?
4: After the end of the World War One, it became part of uh, Kingdom of Serbs, Slovenes and Croats, which later became known as Kingdom of Yugoslavia. And after World War Two, actually Bosnia was uh, recognized as an in independent as a republic in part of the as part of the Yugoslav federation so uh, and it enjoyed some prosperous times you know Yugoslavia was really uh, it was a communist country but it was never a part of communism or socialism like in the rest of eastern europe at the time so uh, and thanks to the leader of Josip Broz Tito, who was uh, a bit uh, charismatic, charismatic person who led a very successful uh, partisan guerrilla uh, during the war and uh, emerged victorious. And he was basically in position to uh, form the structure of the country, including the Bosnia. Maybe you can tell us a little
1: bit more about Tito. I know that uh, people that don't know much about that part of the world might know Tito over yeah, other things. Yeah,
4: yeah. Well, he was he was one of the great icons of the World War yes. II, you know. And uh, he after, after the end of the war, he was able to to actually put himself in position as a a dictator, and uh, later, in the late 50s, beginning of 60s, he was the leader of the non-aligned movement, and uh, Tito himself was really a bon vivant. He enjoyed life, so he liked to hang out with Hollywood stars like Richard Barton, Elizabeth Taylor, so... uh, So, and he wanted to actually present Yugoslavia as a really cool place. Was he one of
1: uh, Elizabeth Taylor's husbands? Uh, No, as
4: as far as I know, (laughs) that was not the case, but... um, Maybe maybe he wanted to be. Maybe Maybe he wanted to be, be, yeah. Yeah, at least Taylor was big back in the days, so, So,
2: General Clark, I understand that Bosnia was actually a pretty prosperous place in the 1980s and even held the Winter Olympics in Sarajevo in 1984. Um, could you explain to our listeners how things began to change in the late 1980s um, and how the war in Bosnia began?
0: Tito carefully juggled the different ethnic groups so that you had Serbs, Croats, Albanians, you had Slovenes, and um, even some Hungarians. And he was well aware of the different nationalities, the different links. Linguist, uh, languages, different religions of these groups, but they were submerged by his pers- the force of his personality. When he passed away, Yugoslavia began to come apart, and a Serb communist lawyer named Slobodan Milosevic took charge uh at leading the use of nationalism as a replacement for the fervor of communism under Tito and the nationalism was actually Serb nationalism, and it alienated the other groups inside the former uh, Yugoslavia. And um, these groups uh, recognized that it, this wasn't just a uh, this wasn't just a rhetoric. Milosevic was actually replacing the Croats, the Slovenes, the Albanians. And, and, and the Hungarians who were in key leadership positions with his Serbs, whom he felt would be more loyal to him. And so this sparked ethnic conflict as the, uh, as the whole communist world came apart. First, Slovenia broke away. There were very few of any other nationalities living in Slovenia. It was relatively peaceful. Then the Croats, broke away in 1991. And when the Croats broke away, there was fighting because there was a Serb minority that lived in the eastern portion and in the uh, southeastern portion of Croatia. And then in 1992, Bosnia declared its independence. Bosnia had Serbs, it had Croats, uh, and some of the original Serb ethnic group had converted to Islam. And so, About 44% of the population by polling was Muslim. So these became viewed as a different group, even though they were the same ethnically as the Serbs. So you had a three-sided struggle that emerged starting in 1992. The Serbs fought back with ethnic cleansing. A Republican Serb army was constituted from the Yugoslav National Army, it was simply all of the soldiers who were from Bosnia, who were Serb, and um, they came forward, and along with some Serb paramilitary gangs, promoted ethnic cleansing in much of eastern and some of northern Bosnia. President Izzyk and the Bosnian Muslims held firm in their sectors in Sarajevo, and soon Sarajevo was surrounded. The Croats Um, at first were with the Muslim minority, and then they went their separate way, and it was a three-sided war for a year or so. And finally, by 1994, that conflict between the Croats and the Bosnian Muslims had been settled, and both were against the Serbs, who were militarily superior.
1: Zana, how old were you when the war started? I was eight
3: when the war started in Bosnia. My mom... My my father and I were just a normal, regular family and living a normal life, and then everything changed in one night. We woke up. I was eight years old still, but I felt um, like I was a grown-up because I started worrying about what to eat um, how to survive, um, how to escape. Then later on as a refugee, how to, um, adapt, how to, uh, prove myself worthy, how to, uh, learn a new language. And, and, um, it was tough, but it also, I also learned to, um, to take care of myself at a very young age. My mom and I were refugees. My dad stayed behind and, Uh, to take care of his parents uh, during the war.
1: So you said when the war started, everything changed. What changed?
3: I grew up. I started thinking about everything that grown-ups think about. I started worrying about how I'm going to survive. I had to take care of myself, and I had to take care of my mom and... As well as my I mean, my mom, of course, was the adult one, but you still worry about your mom and you worry about your dad, who's behind in your family and what's happening, so you don't have that that innocence that a child has once you know that everything you had can be taken away from you in one day
1: and and you know taking it from there, General Clark, what was the state of the conflict when you were officially assigned? to plan the U.S. response in 94.
0: In the United States Army, we were very surprised by this because we were still focused on our recent success in the Gulf War and we were focused on what was happening in Somalia. And uh, right under our noses had begun this intractable, seemingly intractable conflict in Yugoslavia, a place with unpronounceable names and nationalities and groupings we didn't understand and, and a geography we'd never really paid much attention to. And so I came on the scene in April of 1994. I discovered that we had a U.N. protective force, including British and French soldiers, on the ground inside Bosnia. We had NATO forces who were actually helping to enforce a U.N. arms embargo in the Adriatic to prevent arms from getting to either side. And then we had an, an air campaign that was designed to prevent the Serbs from attacking the Bosnians with the Serb Air Force. And we had just shot down a Serb jet um, when I uh, arrived, fresh from the First Cavalry Division at Fort Hood, Texas, to sit in a White House meeting discussing about the rules of engagement. Wow! And um, that's where I that that's where I began.
2: And the siege of Sarajevo had been going on since 1992, right?
0: That's right. And some, perhaps two million people had been driven from their homes, and uh, the casualties might have been. Between 100,000 and 200,000, we weren't sure at the time. We didn't have any way of accounting for them. There were Serb snipers in the high ground and, uh, and on the apartment buildings in the Serb occupied sector of Sarajevo. And so there was an area where you had to get from the airport. You had to go through so-called sniper alley where they could fire down from high buildings. And For no apparent reason, they would shoot and kill people. It was a policy of terror and intimidation of the civilian population. I guess they wanted President Izabekovic to just give up and surrender and leave Sarajevo to the Serbs, but he refused to do that. Weapons were almost non-existent. I walked the trench lines in my first visit to the region in August of 1994. I met with President Izabekovic and and Prime Minister Salajdic. And I walked the trench lines with the Bosnian soldiers where they were trying to defend Sarajevo, and there weren't there wasn't even a rifle per man. So they would swap rifles whenever they started out on patrol. And the Serbs had elected not to actually invade, but to um, cut off, intimidate, and hope to discourage and drive out the Muslims. <laughs>
1: You were sent uh, to Bosnia by uh, Secretary of Defense William
0: Perry. What happened was that during the course of 19, during my first visit over there, I was just writing a paper for the National Security Council staff trying to outline options. I went back to Bosnia a couple of times during the subsequent uh, few months. And essentially in Bosnia, what would happen is with cold weather, It was difficult for people to travel and difficult to reinforce, and so military actions tended to slack off during the wintertime. The siege continued. People were miserable in Sarajevo, and the Serbs continued to hold the high ground. In 1992 and 1993, the UN Protective Forces, in an effort to protect the Bosnian civilian population, had moved them into safe areas, Zepa and Srebrenica, where they were supposed to surrender any weapons and then rely on UN protection. And starting in the summer of 95, the Serbs then attacked these safe areas. They attacked the UN forces. UN forces weren't prepared for war fighting. They were just peacekeeping forces. They didn't have heavy weapons. They didn't have good communications. They didn't have air support and they surrendered. And then what happened is the safe areas were wiped out. And in the summer of 1995, when the Serbs, attacked a Dutch battalion, it was guarding the safe area of Srebrenica. The Dutch battalion had to surrender. Basically the Serbs lined up all the Muslim men, put them on trucks, moved them into the forest, and shot them. Five to 7,000 men were um, executed, while the wives and children were put on buses and sent back into the Bosnian Muslim areas. So this
2: was the infamous Srebrenica, Srebrenica massacre.
0: Right, this is a Srebrenica massacre. Srebrenica, yeah. And um, it as when it happened, um, the United States was, it, it, first of all, we didn't know it as it happened exactly, but we got indications and then we eventually saw some photography that convinced us it was real and General Shalikashvili, my boss, and Secretary Perry and others called NATO together under the instructions of President Clinton and we determined that if it should happen again, NATO would definitely get involved. Meanwhile, the United States had... Uh, constructed a seven-point peace plan. Uh, Tony Lake, the, uh, the National Security Advisor, had put this together. He asked me to go with him along with several others to sell this plan to our allies. And then uh, he turned over our delegation to uh, Ambassador Holbrook, who'd come off his honeymoon, to join us. And there we were in the, the early August of 1995, uh, on the Croatian coast, we'd flown out from London. Holbrook had joined us. Then we flew to see President Milosevic in Belgrade, and uh, then we asked him to give us safe passage into Sarajevo since it was under siege. He went out to call General Milotic, and he came back and said he couldn't do that. So we flew in by helicopter on a Saturday morning to the top of Mount Igman, where there was a of a UN artillery position, but also there was a trail that had been cut down the side of the mountain where um, coming in from that direction, the Serbs hadn't been able to totally seal off Sarajevo. So there was a chance we could slip through the Serb lines and get into Sarajevo that way. So the helicopters landed. um, A US Humvee uh, met me with a major, and, and a UN French armored car met the delegation. So Holbrook and I got in the US Humvee, the armored car took the rest of the delegation, and as we were driving down this treacherous mountain trail, the shoulder on the trail broke under the weight of the armored car, and the armored car rolled down about a quarter of a mile down a very steep uh, hill and killed uh, three members of our delegation. Uh, It got to the bottom, it burned, it had ammunition, the ammunition cooked off, and um, it was a real tragedy. So we lost uh, three uh, good friends of mine in that delegation. We came home and uh, we had uh, a funeral ceremony and President Clinton charged us to go back again. So we reformed the delegation, Ambassador Holbrook and I did. And um, back we went and we started through the negotiations.
1: And then how was the conflict eventually resolved and sort of what was your role in the Dayton Peace Accords?
0: As we went through With the new delegation, we did something called shuttle diplomacy, and we had the seven points that we were given to try to work with. So it was a 49-51 division, and there was a separate area called Republika Srpska that was going to be given to the Serbs that they could govern, and uh, it was going to be part of uh, Bosnia that was 49%, the other 51% would go to the so-called federation between the 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 Croats and the and the Bosnian Muslims. Uh-huh. We wanted to isolate them from the newspapers and from the press. So we arranged to go to the Wright Patterson Air Force Base facilities in Dayton, Ohio. During this time, we were as we were negotiating with them, we were also uh, working up the drafts of the agreement. So my responsibility was the military annex, which was in many respects the the key part because it prescribed what the military had to do to enforce the peace. The United Nations had never been able to do this, to enforce, because they didn't have authority, but they were held responsible for everything. We wanted to make sure in the Dayton military annex that we had authority to do anything and then to minimize our responsibility. So we wanted to turn the UN model upside down. There were many other annexes, including how to return refugees and um, and, uh, whether there was going to be war crimes discussions and justice issues. And... Um, so all of this was put together with uh, in, in a package, and then we just sort of hammered it out in the last three weeks of the negotiations at Dayton. And uh, then the Republic of Srpska was another contentious point. Of course, President Izetbegovic didn't want to recognize it, but ultimately he said, this is unjust, it's unjust, it's unjust, but I I have to do this. And so he gave up 49% of his country mm-hmm. to... Serbs uh, located with their capital in Pali, a suburb of Sarajevo to the east. It was the Thanksgiving week uh, of 1995, so it was 22 years ago, and um, suddenly it was resolved. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So, Zana, what have been the major issues or events in the last 22 years since the Dayton Accords?
3: Well, all the leaders of wartime Bosnia and Herzegovina were either in jail or were investigated by the ICTY after the war. ICTY is an international criminal tribunal for the former Yugoslavia in Hague. But all three are dead now. Also, um, right after the war, the international community... Um, had huge daily involvement in Bosnian affairs. So from humanitarian aid to military equipment, exercises, and this was all um, part of efforts for transitional justice. This term, however, is much larger than all the initiatives implemented after the war, as the main goal was really that the country, Bosnia, can go on living without international justice being violated.
2: So I know Bosnia has a really interesting type of government, different from most places, and the story of how it got to be that way is pretty uh, unique, so can you yeah. tell us about that? Yeah,
4: well, it, probably the most complicated political system is in the world, and the reason for that is that Dayton Peace Accord, it created this huge bureaucratic apparatus uh, with two entities, uh, 10 cantons. Three presidents, uh, each of the cantons in the federation entity, they have their own prime minister, their own ministers of interior, of, uh, of health, of education. So you can imagine. The level of bureaucracy <laughs> in Bosnia, so yeah, it's probably, I think people say one of the most complicated political systems in the world. We have three presidents or 3 party presidency. Uh, each of the member rotates uh, after after uh, eight months, and each of them represents one of three constitutional nations. So we have one for the Serbs, one for the Croats, and one for the Bosniaks. Give us like the quick one minute on the politics of the country. It's dominated by political parties. There is little to no accountability because uh, uh, there there are so many different governing levels that it's really hard to focus on any party and say, "Okay, this party is responsible for this or that." And uh, because we have situation, for example, that one big party from Republic of Srpska, SDS, is in opposition in Republic of in in entity, but it's actually in the government on the state level. So, you know, you can only imagine how difficult it is for average voters to actually figure out who's responsible for their ordinary problems and who should be voting for at, at, at any election. So and
2: I think it's interesting that, you know, because they have the tripartite presidency that rotates between the different ethnicities, um, You that creates a political system where it's dominated also by ethnic factions, yes. right? Yeah. Yeah. And do you think that in a way like keeps the war alive because you can never get rid of the distinction between... Bosniaks and Croats and Serbs.
4: Yeah, and uh, and the big national parties are actually using that. And uh, before every elections, uh, they are what they are doing. They're just raising the national rhetoric. They are, uh, you know, repeating the stories from the war of the victimhood. Uh, who's the biggest victim, who should get more rights. So it's just, uh, you know, dynamic which never stops, unfortunately.
2: Donna, what's the current political situation like in Bosnia and Herzegovina today?
3: Bosnian political system is created in a way that it makes it more likely that progress is blocked than the agreement found on issues that affect us all. We have regular elections. Um, there are irregularities that happen, but overall elections... Um, are accepted and recognized. Um, that said, the country keeps standing in one place, even, even going backwards in some cases, socially, economically, and politically. And this is because the system in Bosnia is set up according to ethnic divisions um, with a goal to ensure and protect the equality of the so-called constituent peoples in the country. Not the country itself, not the individual citizen, but um, the constituent peoples. And there are three, as we know Bosniaks, Serbs, and Croats. Uh, the system, based on the Constitution, which is also our peace agreement, Dayton Agreement, so our Constitution is the peace agreement, in fact, it doesn't address social groups, like especially not particularly vulnerable groups or any. Social groups. So, in practice, um the system has been protecting none of social groups, not even really the peoples
1: that it supposedly should. Well, said Zana.
4: Borko, what are some other issues that voters care about? You know, it's it's easy answer. It's the unemployment. Uh, for example, we have one of the highest rates of youth unemployment in Bosnia, 57.5% of youth unemployment. So it's a huge issue. And because of that, there are many young people leaving the country. And in the last couple of years, some statistics are saying that 150,000 people left the country. Wow. And for the country of 3.7 million people, that's a, that's a huge number. Borko, we've seen in some countries that unemployment can lead to violent extremism, How does this play out in Bosnia? We had a pretty large contingent of people from Bosnia, and not only from Bosnia, but from the rest of the Western Balkans region, from places like Kosovo and Macedonia, going to Syria and joining these groups. Uh, From Bosnia, exactly, we had somewhere around 270 people who left, um, out of that number, 50 of them returned, and uh, I think just over 100 are still in the country, but we have no idea What happened to them, especially recently, with the fall of Raqqa and and the general uh, military defeat of ISIS? We have no idea what's what's happening with those people. But in Bosnia itself, uh, it's something that we've been working on as IRI for the last couple of years, and uh, we noticed some interesting trends.
3: Zana, what's
2: Bosnia Herzegovina's relationship with its neighbors like?
3: Well, following the conclusion of the wars and overall general directions of of all the neighboring countries is looking at. Um, towards European Union we're all on the path or some like Croatia and Slovenia are already part of the European Union in Bosnia we are now officially in the accession process and responding to the EU questionnaire this process of course reveals problems it is all done in secret without public involvement in this whole EU accession process Croatia um, as the nearest EU country is a great asset to Bosnia in terms of having gone through the process itself. So we often look to Croatia for, um, to share good practices on how to harmonize domestic legislation to the EU laws as part of the process, because we have common history and common um, characteristics when it comes to political and legal legacy of former Yugoslavia. So Croatia is a natural role model and, and a reference to, to Bosnia. Our neighbors to the east, on the other hand, have um, taken a stronger leadership role among the uh, non-EU countries in the region to be at the helm of efforts towards the accession. Um, and in order to be that, Serbia must show respect and rec- recognition of uh, the Bosnian war and um, the suffering endured in Bosnia as a sign or or. um first step toward developing a different neighborly um, relationship with that country. And this was clear in 2015 when President of Serbia, Mr. Vucic, came to Srebrenica for the memorial on July 11th. He was attacked, uh, but not seriously injured while there. But the whole event has remained as a great gesture in um, Bosnian uh, public. Serbia also has a special relationship with other, uh, with one of the two entities in Bosnia, the Republic of Srpska. Of oh, Srpska, this entity uh, and specifically its leader has been another source of instability in the country. Uh, there are threats of referendum for separation of that entity, and uh, in fact, it's it's a common political tool. Um, that this leader uses, and sadly, it, um, it it it's repeated throughout the years, and creates sort of um, fear and and um, even I would say uh, divides divides ethnic lines. As as with Croats, we share history and culture with Serbia, so it's important that we um, put a government in place that will focus on maximizing our resources. I believe I I think our people deserve better, and we can do better.
2: So, changing the subject now to general um, politics here, when is the next election?
4: Uh, October 2018, next year.
2: And do you have any predictions?
4: Uh, I don't expect any major changes. Probably, you know, the major players will remain. Uh, the only Different political dynamic, dynamic which could happen, uh, is in the Republic of Srpska, uh, where incumbent President Milorad Dodik, if he loses, that will probably change the whole current dynamic because lately he's been very ardent in calls for referendum for separation of Republic of Srpska, and if opposition managed to to actually create some other momentum, that can actually be a positive uh, momentum for uh, for the whole country. So Zana, what about you? Any predictions for the next election?
3: Probably much more of the same. Unless we make an effort to ensure that um, the stale powers of the wars of the past retire and allow new perspectives to, to, to take part in our elected bodies, we need to think of social groups more, and we need to we need to stop focusing on the three constituent peoples and start focusing on social groups, and need women especially, we need women as representatives. Without widespread, inclusive uh, Bosnian-wide process for new constitution, and um, new political community in Bosnia, I'm afraid we're going to continue uh, on seeing the same pattern over and over.
1: So Borco, tell me, what is the current democratic trajectory of the country, and also the region? and how does Bosnia and Herzegovina play into that?
4: Yeah, well, all of the countries of the region are aiming to become members of the European Union, but unfortunately, that process really stalled lately, uh, most because of the problems within the European Union itself. I mean, with Brexit, with economic crisis, and I think there is a question within the European Union whether they need more countries, more members, and, of course, that's unfortunate turn of event for the countries in the Western Balkans. So, after Croatia was accepted, I think that Brussels said, "Okay, you will become a member eventually, but it's going to be a long process and Of course, that didn't go well with the people because people kind of trying to 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 see whether it's going to happen anytime soon and with that in mind, other players are filling the void um, Countries like Russia, some Gulf countries are actually putting more money, more influence into the region, and they have their own agenda, which is, of course, not that this region should become a member of the European Union or a member of NATO. And, of course, uh, more and more people are. accepting these narratives and are, and that and that's that's a problem that's the problem really that's we we are also trying to address through through our program
2: Zana what can other countries learn from Bosnia and Herzegovina
3: I believe that other countries can learn that constitutions that are discriminating against any groups don't work for example what i mean to say is so if you are a citizen of Bosnia and Herzegovina like i am and you don't for whatever reason Feel that you belong to one single ethnic group, then you are called the other. It's not a minority; it's a group called other. There has been a case at the International European Humanitarian Court suing Bosnian Constitution for this discrimination in within our Constitution, and um, the court ruled in their favor. For example, if you belong to the others group, you cannot be a member of the of the uh, a member of the presidency. We have three presidents, and they rotate during one mandate. And um, if you don't belong to one of the three peoples, you cannot be um, a member of the presidency. And parliaments, uh, there is a very similar situation. So I think other countries should learn that ethnic divides and constitution based on ethnic divides don't work in practice and are discriminatory.
1: Zana, we ask this in every episode. If an international time capsule was shut off into deep space, what one physical item, only one, would be included to represent Bosnia and Herzegovina?
3: I think of wood or the the raw, unprocessed tree trunk to exemplify the absurdity of the current situation in Bosnia when it comes to environmental protection, for example, and our riches when it comes to um, natural resources. We have some of the most beautiful forests in Europe, and partly we find a consensus in the country actually when it comes to issues regarding the environment. But at the same time, illegal deforestation is ongoing. Um, the legal sanctions for these are minimal and ineffective, and instead of using our assets, we're destroying it because of our inability to think long term. At the same time, uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina makes most beautiful furniture out of wood and it's um one of the um, most successful industries that we have so therefore a lot of jobs that a lot of people are employed so this this ambiguity is, is to me this tree trunk represents this um natural resources and then our and ability to protect them.
2: Well, Zana, that was actually our hint for this episode, was that Bosnia was the last country in Europe to have a jungle. Oh, good. Oh, lovely.
1: Well, that does it, Sinclair, our final episode for 2017. It's been a great year.
2: Woo! So for listeners to have only three things to remember uh, from this episode, what do you think they would be?
1: Well, I think what really comes out of, especially the the General Clark interview, was the important role that the U.S. played in the conflict, especially in the Dayton negotiations and the signing of the, of the peace agreement, and then, of course, its implementation, and then continues to play today in terms of helping the country move forward um, and, and, and and to get out of some of this domestic political gridlock that they currently experiences. The
2: second thing for me was would be the diversity of this region, how striking it is in terms of both ethnic diversity and relig- religious diversity. You know, despite the challenges that come with having so many different groups of people, this country has has the potential to be a really successful example of a post-conflict pluralist state.
1: Agreed, Sinclair. You know, number three is really this inter-ethnic reconciliation ultimately rests in the youth of the country. Um, You know, hopefully this young generation is going to propel sustainable change in this country to a point where people no longer solely identify themselves from this ethnic background. This really lies in the hands of the country's youth moving forward.
3: Agreed. I'm from Bosnia, take me to America. I really want to see Statue of Liberty. I can no longer wait, take me to United States. Take me to Golden Gate, I will assimilate.
2: So, DT, we just had one of our best lineups ever this
1: month. Yeah, many thanks to General Wesley Clark, Uh, for taking the time to walk us through his pivotal role in the war in Bosnia. And uh, more importantly, we really like to thank him for his tremendous service to our country. His Twitter handle, if you want to follow him, is at General Clark. If you want to learn more military history from the general himself, he is teaching a course through the great courses. I don't know, Sinclair, have you ever heard of that?
2: Yeah, I actually have. Uh,
1: Yes. Well, it's really cool. Of course, listen to our podcast first, then tune in to the great courses. But it's on American military history from colonials to counterinsurgents. Sounds pretty... Cool. That sounds really interesting. Thegreatcourses.com.
2: And then, of course, we need to thank Zana Marjanovic um, for sharing her personal story uh, from refugee to actress to member of parliament. Um, So you can see Zana next year in her upcoming movie, A Rose in Winter, where she portrays Edith Stein as the lead role. You can follow Zana on Twitter at Zana, Z-A-N-A underscore Marjanovic, M-A-R-J-A-N-O-V-I-C.
1: Yes. And last but not least, a special thank you to our very own uh, Barslav Spasilevich uh, Borko, as he is known throughout the halls of IRI. If you want to learn more about IRI's youth and reconciliation work, things we're doing like preventing violent extremism and other work in Bosnia-Herzegovina, you got to follow him on Twitter, Borko Spas, so it's at Borko, B-O-R-K-O-S-P-A-S, check him out. <laughs>
2: This concludes Season 1 of Global.
1: If there's a country you want to learn about when we return for Season 2 on January 1, let us know. Shoot
2: us an email at podcast at IRI.org, tweet at us at IRI Global, or leave us a review on iTunes.
1: And all I want for Christmas, Sinclair, aside from a new set of steak knives, is five stars on iTunes, especially on this episode. We need to get our jobs back for next year.
2: (laughs) Agreed. And happy holidays to all of our listeners. Thanks for all your support over this last year.
1: On today's episode, you've heard the national anthem of Bosnia Herzegovina and some great Bosnian music. Sinclair, our staff in Bosnia, did great work. Amila Karacic and Maya Bedak, thank you for your music suggestions.
2: And of course, thank you to Alex Hollinghead for our theme music.
1: No place like a So Sinclair, our hint, uh, I think you have a little hint for us for our next episode, which is next year in the next season. Mm
2: -hmm. So this country had the world's first writing system and
1: recorded history. So if you know the answer to this, as our listeners, please, you can leave a comment. You can email us again at podcast.iriglobal or tweet at us and we may give you a shout out on air. Thanks. See you next season.
2: Bye.